0: The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desire, who will turn away their ears from the truth and turn them aside to nips, but you'll be sober. Then he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Then he talks about demons having loved the present world, has deserted me. Christians have gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, even Titus at one point. Only Luke is with me. And Then he goes on about those who are attacking him, like Alexander the Coppersmith, over his doctrine. And then he says in verse 16, At my defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and sent me. People who he gave his lifeblood, his guts for, He gave his soul for, he laid his life down for people, and the very people he laid his life down for were the ones who knifed him in the back. That's what it's really like to be a pastor. Somebody is called the pastoral ministry, that's the reality of pastoral ministry. Giving your life and your guts for people and they knife you in the back for it. I can handle it. Partially because I'm a vicious soul anyway. Partially because I'm used to it, partially because I just don't care, and partially because I'm itinerant. Now, the, per- the personal relationships that get broken hurt me very much. But as far as what people say, to me it's water off the duck's back, you know. You should hear what they said about me before I was a Christian. <laughs> You're laughing. You've hurt me. Before I knew the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior, I used to get thrown out of pubs, nightclubs, whorehouses, rock concerts, you name it, I got thrown out. Since putting my faith in Jesus, I get thrown out of churches. (laughs) That's true. It's true. But when a pastor gets thrown out of his church, that's a tragedy, isn't it? And I've 34 years, a human minister, and they tell him to take a walk? Well, that's it. That's what they did to him. Please keep us in prayer. Uh, this year is beginning to look better than last year. But it's going to take us a while to recover from last year. Uh, certainly spiritually, certainly financially, but even, perhaps most of all, psychologically and emotionally. People who were my friends, people that they used to invite me to their church, and when can you speak, and when can you come? And because of this Toronto thing, that's it. It's gone, and probably gone forever. Probably gone forever. Some of these relationships will never, ever, ever be restored. Not this side of eternity. But that's it. But you know what? Before Jesus comes, it's going to be more like that. Before Jesus comes, it's going to be more like that. There's going to be a division in the body of Christ. And of course, that division has already commenced. I just hope I'm on the right side with the Lord as things continue to divide. Nonetheless, look with me, please, at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 29, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? Don't let anyone ever tell you that if you don't pray in tongues, there's something wrong with you. Unless it's interpreted, it's the least of the gifts. Why? Why? Because it's only good for personal edification, not for edification of the body. Don't let anyone tell you there's something wrong with you if you don't do it. Personally, I do it. But I don't think it would matter to me too much if God gave me some other gift instead of that one. I know plenty of people who love the Lord Jesus very much, who have the power of God in their lives and in their ministries, who do not pray in tongues, I know plenty of people who go around praying in tongues and their spiritual and emotional basket cases. And I would venture to say most of you know people like that as well, don't you? All do not pray in tongues. All do not interpret. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. What are the greater gifts? The things that are the greater gifts are the things that serve to build up the body the most. Now, if you witness to somebody in a language you don't speak, and that happens on their occasion, well, okay. But otherwise, it's not a greater gift. We have no chapter division in the Greek text, and I show you still a more excellent way. He goes on now talking about love, the love chapter. But it's a fluid transition. He already begins talking about the members caring for one another. So it's a natural progression for him to begin talking about love in chapter 13, because in the previous section, in chapter 12, he's talking about the members of the body loving each other, using the gifts to build each other up. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it it's me nothing. Agape. Then he describes what agape love is. Love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, does not brag, and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. We know in part and we prophesy in part. (coughs) But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part but then I shall know fully just as I also have been known. But now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest is love. The argument that goes beyond idiocy. Again, I can love and express these people, as it says, love is patient and bears all things and endures all things. Love never fails. I love these people, but their arguments are based on idiocy. What is the argument? You have your gifts. We'll have love. We have the more excellent way. You people can have your gifts. You. We choose to have love. There's actually people who will say that. Based on they're so-called exegesis of this passage. No way does the passage try to make love and gifts of the Spirit mutually exclusive. But they're trying to make it mutually exclusive. You understand? Now, the text simply doesn't say that. In other words, it's like saying, what if you're a good provider as a husband, as a father? What if you give your wife a convertible? What if you give your kids a holiday in Disneyland? What if you give them a nice house to live in, but you don't give your wife any affection or attention, and when your kids go to Disneyland, you don't go with them? It's not saying there's anything wrong with being kind to your wife and your kids. It's simply saying Without love, what's the rest of it? What do you send them to Disneyland for to get rid of them? What are you giving her the convertible for? So maybe she'll drive it away and you want to spend any time with her? It's that kind of argument. Then they go on to argue If there's prophecy, it'll be done away with. If there's tongues, it'll be done away with. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away with. We know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Now, the argument then becomes, that's a prophecy about the New Testament being written. The early Christians needed things like prophecy because they didn't have the New Testament. Now we have the perfect, so therefore these gifts have ended. When the last apostle, some say, when the last apostle died. Some say when John wrote Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. Others, I suppose, might argue when they finally agreed on what the canon of the New Testament was because there was a dispute in the early church. It was a dispute. They're not exactly agreed among themselves when these things ceased, when the perfect came. But that's basically what they say. Now, taking this argument to its natural conclusion. If you're saying, okay, the gifts are childish. Once you have the perfect, you don't need the childish things. And the perfect has already come. But now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now there's a big problem. Love lasts forever. We won't always need faith. And we won't always need hope, will we? We're told that, aren't we? When we see it, we won't have to have faith anymore. Hope won't last. Faith won't last. They'll be useless. The only thing that will last is love. Agape. But now abideth faith, hope, and love. Well, faith and hope, obviously, pass away when the perfect comes. But if the perfect has already come, looking at the context, taking their argument to its logical conclusions, we no longer need either faith or hope since the perfect has already come. The perfect is not the New Testament being written. The perfect is the return of Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. The perfection. Meshulam in Hebrew. That's what the perfect means. He's not saying the perfect has come, he's saying the perfect will come. If he was arguing that the perfect would come and the gifts would end when the perfect would come, and that's the Bible, then in that case, since the perfect came, why do we need either faith or hope? Even faith and hope will disappear, but not love. Therefore, cessationism fails. Where does this stuff come from? It comes from a number of places. You had two kinds of people trying to get back to the Bible in the 16th century. One were the Anabaptists and the other were the Protestants. If you are a Pentecostal or a Baptist or brethren, never call yourself a Protestant. The Protestants would have killed you. You believe in believers' baptism... They persecuted people like you. You believe in gifts of the Spirit, the Reformers and their followers would have persecuted you. If you are a Baptist or a Pentecostal, if you don't believe in a state church, if you believe in believers' baptism, if you believe we should look at Scripture in light of itself instead of through the prism of the fathers, the patristic writing, you don't believe in Erastianism, the state church, and if you do believe in things like gifts of the Spirit, don't call yourself a Protestant. You would have been an Anabaptist during the Reformation, not a Protestant. The Protestants would have killed you and your family. More often than not. The Reformers failed to restore everything. It was the Anabaptists who tried to put back biblical Christianity, not the Reformers. They only wanted to go back part of the way. Now, the Roman Catholic Church made many bogus claims about miracles in the Middle Ages, particularly during the Renaissance to suck money out of people to get money to build these great cathedrals of the Renaissance. And they had relics, fetishism. They had enough splinters of the cross to make the cross 30 stories high. And people would be claiming miracles associated with it. They were selling vials of the breast milk of Mary. They were selling the nails of the cross, crucifixion. They were selling everything and claiming miracles associated with it. All manner of bogus miracles and erroneous claims. So therefore, the reformers threw the baby out with the bathwater. They wanted nothing to do with miracles. The Anabaptists did. They were open to it. Some of them. Let's look at the founders of mainstream evangelical Christianity in the English speaking world, that is Great Britain and the United States. John Wesley was a charismatic. George Whitfield was a charismatic. They began the great evangelical revival. Theo Moody testified to the baptism of the Spirit, and so did R.A. Torrey. Charles Finney had a lot of wrong doctrines, but he was certainly open to the gifts of the Spirit. Jonathan Edwards, charismatic. The founders. Of mainstream evangelical Christianity in Great Britain and America, but predominantly charismatic, particularly nonconformist. With the rise of liberal theology, somebody came along named Benjamin Warfield, B.B. B. Warfield. And again, he throws the baby out with the bathwater. He will, goes back to a staunch reformed Calvinistic position, Taking on everything the Calvinists said, including cessationism. Warfield did a lot to introduce this kind of way of reading that these things ended with the apostles. Additionally, you had people who took a truth too far. They took a truth and stretched it to the point the truth became an error. They were the dispensationalists, particularly the hyper-dispensationalists, John Darby. The open brethren were much more moderate than Darby. So even though there is a basic truth in dispensationalism, when you stretch it to the degree that some of those people did, particularly the closed brethren and Darby, it gets into all kinds of error. And again, this further engenders cessationism, that these things ended. It's absolutely absurd to say that the perfect has come. And we don't need these gifts. Because if the perfect has come, neither would we need faith or hope anymore. But we do need faith. And we do need hope. Because the perfect has not come, you have to practice asegesis read something into the text that doesn't say, to say the perfect means the New Testament being written. There's not even a suggestion of it in the text. Cessationism is absolutely absurd. Now, we can argue quite plausibly, if you ever studied the typology of the Jewish calendar, that there's a former reign and a latter reign. The second rain, the second outpouring of the spirit, it's true. Now this is not to be confused with the latter rain movement of Kingdom Now and the Joel's army stuff of the vineyard. That's all error. False. Get the tapes in which we explain why it's false. But there is a great pouring of the spirit in the last days. And there is an outpouring of the spirit upon Israel. It's a Jewish calendar. Israel's God's time, peace for the nation. And because you have an abundance of rain in the beginning of the Jewish calendar year and an abundance at the end, situated around the harvest feasts, if you understand the typology of the Jewish calendar, we have videos and tapes on it, you can see why there's an abundance of gifts in the early church and an abundance in the last days. But fewer instances of them during the centuries, even though they never fully stopped. Never. They were always around. What you're doing is sending somebody into combat without bullets. What you're doing. These gifts have their place and their purpose. Without them, you're not going to have true unity. Without them, you're going to be not able to face up to the challenges God wants you to, or that we need to, in the way he has ordained. We're supposed to be equipped. These gifts are supposed to help us carry out our ministry. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. He does not make love and gifts exclusive. He says do both. I came to London Bible College from Israel. Thank God. I was going to go to Moody Bible Destitute in Chicago. They had a very good Jewish studies program under Dr. Lewis Goldberg, which was the only reason I wanted to go there. I liked him and I liked his department. But as far as the institution, they sent me their catalog. I opened it up and it said, if you want to go to Moody Bible Institute, you can't have a beard. On the front page was D.L. Moody and R.A. Torrey, the founders of Moody Bible Institute. They would have been thrown out. For refusing to shave. I said, These people are hypocrites. This is just stinking hypocrisy. It was just so stupid. It was the most blatant hypocrisy I ever saw in my life. Absolutely revolting. I'm not going to this place. Then they said, We do not endorse the tongue speaking movement. That's how they called the gifts of the Spirit, the tongue speaking movement. It so happens, I'm familiar, I've read the biography of D.L. Moody. I've read the testimony of R.A. Torrey, including of his spirit baptism. They both testified to it. Sweep that under the rug. Now, it wouldn't bother me if they called themselves the Chicago Bible Institute, but they claimed to be following Moody and Torrey, teaching against what Moody and Torrey taught and believed. It wasn't their theology that bothered me so much, it was the hypocrisy. It was just open hypocrisy. I'm told it's gotten better since the former president has left. I'm glad he did. Desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks Mysteries. There are some people who will try to tell you that when you pray in tongues, demons can't stand it because they don't know what you're saying. Did you ever hear somebody say whoever heard somebody say that? You were taught that in the church. There's tongues of angels and of men. As far as tongues of angels, Satan is one. In fact, he was the chief angel. As far as tongues of men, he understands Chinese, French, Cockney, Scouse, and Geordie just as all he does English. Where do they get this? You cannot prove that Satan doesn't understand this in the Bible. He speaks mysteries in his spirit. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. That's what prophecy is for. One who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more, that you would prophesy. Greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. In other words, once again, tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy or it. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching. If I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you? You see Copeland and Hagen crowning back and forth in tongues in that video with Mike Evans. Yet even lifeless things, the flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugler produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? Speaking, of course, in cadence, in martial music, when a bugler would sound the trumpet and the people would identify, the soldiers would know what to do by the trumpet. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be the one who speaks a barbarian to him, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. I know a case of a leader of a congregation in Israel visited the United States, and he went to a congregation in California. A Messianic fellowship. And in the synagogue, you read the Torah with a brass finger. You point to it. The rabbi, when he points to it. And the guy puts on tefillin at night, which is something you're supposed to do in the daytime. He puts it in at night. And he goes up. <laughs> he goes up with the tefillin on. And he takes the brass finger and he opens the Torah scroll. And he goes, sumba sumba. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what Shomba, sumba sumba meant, but I assure you it has absolutely no bearing on Leviticus chapter 16. (laughs) (laughs) True story. Boy, do you have some nuts in the Messianic movement. If there's anything worse than the extreme elements of the charismatic movement, it's the extreme elements of the Messianic movement oh you wouldn't believe some of these people they're crazy if you give them some mortar and bricks they'll go out and rebuild the wall of partition tomorrow if everything Jesus died to get rid of they'd rebuild it Verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. In other words, don't seek the gifts. Seek to edify the church. If you want the gift to have the gift, God's not going to give it to you. You're asking for the asking for wrong motive, it says in James. You've got to ask for the right motive. Your aim should be to want to build up the church and Lord, give me whatever gift I need to achieve that. You know in your wisdom what gifts I need to build up the church. You give me the gifts I need. Let my aim be to build up the church, the body of Christ. Lord, you give me what I need to do it. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I shall pray with the Spirit, and I shall pray with my mind also. I shall sing with the Spirit, and I shall sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, and he's speaking about a spiritual language here, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, a non-charismatic, say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough. You may be really doing it. But the other man is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. You think about it. In a meeting, if there's no interpretation, Paul says, Under the inspiration of the Spirit, five words with your mouth is better than 10,000 in a language somebody doesn't understand. What you do in your prayer closet is different. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. Again, So many charismatics are like children in their thinking. Then he refers to a prophecy in Isaiah 28. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but to those who believe. If therefore the entire church should assemble together and all speak in tongues and an ungifted man or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all. Now, what does that mean? If tongues are a sign for those who do not believe, how do you explain, verse 23, if therefore the whole church should assemble together and speak in tongues and unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? How can tongues be a sign for unbelievers? Two ways. One, the day of Pentecost. Tongues was a sign for unbelievers. Why? Because they understood what was being said, didn't they? It was human languages that they could understand hearing the praises of God. It was a sign for unbelievers on the day of Pentecost. Secondly, if it's interpreted. This is an interpretation and a prophetic message or a word of knowledge in it for the unsaved. On the other hand, if prophecy is a sign for the unsaved, I'm sorry, for the believers, and he says an ungifted man enters, that is a Christian who's not operating in the gifts, he's convicted by all. How can that be? Very simply. Prophecy is a sign for an unbeliever because it is not speaking of the gift of prophecy. It is speaking about prophesying. Again, it's using the general term as opposed to the gift. You could be prophesying. And in that prophesying there can be a word of knowledge. There can be a word of wisdom. There can be a revelation for that person. The idea is, do it for edification. If you're going to prophesy, prophesy, do it in order, in such a way it's going to edify the body. Either cause the unsaved to want to get saved, or in some way encourage, the body. Tongues is the same. He puts the ungifted and the unsaved in the same brackets. Why? Because we're supposed to practice these gifts in such a manner as the unsaved will want to get saved, and the ungifted, the non-charismatics, will want to become charismatic. But if we do it in a disorderly manner, the unsaved and the non-charismatics will say, We are mad. And that's what they're saying. Makes perfect sense. Tongues are a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. That's right. The day of Pentecost, it was a sign for unbelievers. And it still can be. When operated biblically. How can it be a sign then for believers? It seems to contradict. Because when it's accompanied by interpretation, this chapter tells us, it becomes a form of prophecy. It only tongues alone. That's called the sign for the unsaved, like in the day of Pentecost. It was a sign for them. And then he goes on to explain how this happens. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. So he'll fall on his face and worship God. In other words, within the prophecy. Or what's in the interpreted tongue is a word of knowledge. You understand? Remember what I said? These things come in combination. If the tongue is interpreted authentically, there'll be something in it that will letify the body. Either for the unsaved who come to the meeting or for the Christians. It becomes a form of prophecy in which there can be a word of knowledge. You understand? You have a non-charismatic coming into an orderly charismatic or an orderly Pentecostal meeting where things are done biblically, decently, and in order, where Jesus is lifted up and where the gifts are practiced in a biblical manner. And he comes in and somebody prophesies to him or in the body or somebody comes in a tongue and it's interpreted and there's a word of knowledge in it for him personally. You see what happens. He'll want to become a charismatic. You understand? If an unsaved person comes and it's done biblically and in order, and in that prophecy the secrets of his heart are disclosed as a word of knowledge, he'll be convicted. How did you know that? Just like that Jewish girl in the taxi cab in New York. How did you know? Does anybody not understand that it does not contradict itself? Does anybody see what I'm saying? Does anybody not understand? Is anybody still confused? You got it. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, has a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Some have suggested that this means there's no further need for leadership. Not true. What leadership, particularly pastoral leadership, should be doing is identifying and stirring up the gifts. One task of a pastor, after someone is born again and is discipled in the basic truths of the faith and gets baptized and so on, and filled with the Spirit, A pastor should be helping that person to discover their ministry and to discover what gifts God is giving that person to equip them to do that ministry. There is a role for leadership. One task of leadership is to help people to identify and stir up their gifts and also to maintain order in the meetings. You can have a beautiful meeting and people can come and somebody has a teaching the Lord has shared, and somebody has a tongue and an interpretation, and then there's a prophecy, and the spirit is moving in the worship and the fellowship, and everything is right. And then you get some kook comes in, runs around to giving people words and saying crazy things, or stands up from the back, Hallelujah like this, and they just totally disrupt what the Spirit is doing. Have you ever seen that happen? Is there anybody who has never seen it happen? No. Verse 27 If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three, and each in ten, and let one interpret. Let it be done for edification. You want to pray in tongues? I pray in tongues. In my prayer closet, I pray in tongues. I pray in tongues in meetings to myself. If I do it audibly, it's got to be one at a time and it's got to be interpreted. So it will benefit other people. Otherwise, it's only edifying myself and that's fine, but that's all. If there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Do it in your prayer closet. But let him speak to himself and to God. You can pray in tongues all you want to yourself and to God. You see, it's like this. With the partial exception of the high priestly prayer, and even that was an excessive. Jesus made short, concise prayers in public. His long, drawn-out prayers when he was by himself with his father. When you find people making long, ostentatious, cavalier prayers and meetings, 90% of the time, it's either because they're a young believer who doesn't know any better, or because there's something wrong with their personal prayer life. You can pray instructively like Jesus did when he resurrected Lazarus, but basically, you don't pray to draw attention to yourself. People who need to come and have all this exhibition stuff, I'm telling you, they're worshiping worship. They're not worshiping the Lord. You look at them. They go from conference to conference, meeting to meeting, church to church, wherever they feel the Spirit's moving, wherever there's the most excitement. A wicked generation seeks the sign. Are they seeking an experience of the Lord, or are they seeking the Lord? Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, when I go away on a business trip, I look forward to ministry trips. I look forward to getting back to my family. Yes, I'm going to spend time and take my children to Alton Towers. And yes, I'm going to have a little hanky-panky with my wife on the side when I get back. But for me, I'm not thinking mainly about riding on a roller coaster or a little hoochie-coochie. I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about my children. That's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about them. The rest goes with it, but that's not the issue. You understand? And that's what Paul was trying to say here. Are you seeking the manifestation or are you seeking the Lord itself? If people are seeking a deeper experience of God, what do they mean by that? If they mean they're seeking more of God, well, that's one thing. But if it means they're seeking more experience, that's wrong. If you love your wife, the romance is going to be there. If you love your children, the fun times are going to be there as a byproduct of the relationship. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about my kids. I'm not just mainly thinking about what's going to happen when I'm with them. I'm thinking about them. They are more important to me. If there was no such thing as roller coasters, I wouldn't love my kids any less. And if there was no such thing as sex, I wouldn't love my wife any less. They are more important to me than the things you do with them, even though the things you do with them are important. You understand? I'm seeking a deeper experience with God. What do you? Is the emphasis, and he would say dagash, is the emphasis, is the stress on God, or is it on the experience? Let's look. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment prophecy must be examined. No matter what form it takes, if it's the gift of prophecy, if it's a word of wisdom, no matter what form, an interpreted tongue, however that prophecy in the general sense comes across, it must be judged. If a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be exhorted. Once again, The emphasis is on the body, isn't it? When you find people not doing it this way, it's because they're behaving self-indulgently. But the gifts are not given for self-indulgence, they're given for the body. So that all may learn and all may be exhorted. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. These people are responsible for what they say. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, peace here, he's using the Hebrew term. One of the things that happens in Corinthians is that Paul is trying to explain Jewish, Hebraic concepts, to people, most of whom have a Greek mentality. Irene in Greek, but the Hebrew, shalom. It doesn't mean simply an absence of conflict. Shalom means, le fulfillment. Peace does not mean necessarily quiet. It means fulfillment. Order. He goes on talking about women. Separate subject in a general sense, but we'll look at it here just as to the degree it pertains to the subject of gifts of the Spirit. There is nothing in the text that would say women are not allowed to pray or minister gifts of the Spirit. What it's saying is that they have to operate under their husbands. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it's not It's improper for a woman to speak in church. In other words, before a woman goes asking the pastor or the leaders some theological question, she should first ask her husband and get his consent before she goes to them, if she has a husband. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So if anyone's not recognizing this, one of the things you have now, some of the people going away, stirring up the most trouble are people like Madeline Hickey and Jane Austen, these crazy women whose heads are far from covered. Total disorder. Much of the havoc going on, much, is because of these kinds of women. Let them keep silent in the churches. They shouldn't be permitted to speak. Let them be subject to who? As the law says. What does the law say? To their husbands. There's no problem with women praying or sharing or ministering under the covering of their husbands, or of the male leadership of the church if they're single, or of their fathers, if their fathers, if their parents are believers. Male authority is protected. It's not dominant. It's protective. Remember, women by nature are vulnerable to spiritual seduction. Because women are more sensitive than men, it's easier for them to be saved. It's easier for them to hear from the Lord But anything God intends for good, the devil will use for evil. It's easier for women to be seduced. Also, women tend to be loquacious. You see at a woman's prayer meeting. I see it all the time. The women talk a lot, and they spend half the prayer meeting talking before they get down to praying. It's just the way they are. I'm not saying all women are like that, but there is that tendency. Let's be honest. Sometimes men are as well, aren't they? If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophecy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. When you see people who will forbid speaking in tongues in their churches, they are acting directly contrary to the Word of God. They are acting just as directly contrary to the Word of God as those who will do these things in a disorderly manner. But let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Properly and in an orderly manner. Properly means scripturally. Orderly means orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. 30 years of charismatic renewal, and we've yet to see the church renewed. 30 years of this movement, and we've yet to see revival. We've seen one miscarriage after another. One false promise after another. First they said it's going to be Kansas City. Doesn't happen. Then Toronto, doesn't happen. Now they're going to say it's promise keepers. That's not going to happen either. It goes wrong at an early stage. Why? Let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Some people throw the baby out with the bathwater. They openly defy the Word of God. They forbid it. They teach error and say that it ended with the Apostles' full stop. Others go to the opposite extreme. They seek the gift above the giver. They replace the emphasis on Jesus with the spirit. But then it becomes a wrong spirit. Doctrinal basis is totally chucked out the window in favor of an experiential theology. And the end product is ultimately chaos. Those Toronto meetings were chaos, confusion, Ours is not a god of confusion. When unsaved people see it, they think we're nuts. And when non-charismatic see it, they think we're nuts. Worst of all, they're right. All things should be done properly and in an orderly manner. After 30 years, forget it. I think it is absolutely silly to expect anything good to come out of the charismatic or Pentecostal churches anymore, as a whole. Individuals, individual congregations, yes. But the movement as a whole, Western Pentecostalism, by and large, forget it. The mainstream denominations, forget it. The charismatic movement, doubly forget it. But neither am I willing to forbid it. To throw the baby out with the backwater. The quest is always spirit and truth. Balance. Once again, Isaiah 37. Verse 31. The surviving remnants will take root downward and bear fruit upwards. There's nothing left to do anymore but begin over. You understand? There's nothing left to do but begin over. It's like you build a skyscraper and it keeps falling down. You can build the 20 stories, but it seems every time you go above 20 stories, it begins to corrode. You might get to 30, then it will fall, and it's up to the 20 again. Why? There's something wrong in the foundation. We've got to tear up the ground and begin over. Right back to the beginning. There is no hope for any revival coming from the present charismatic churches or movement. Absolutely none. Its premise is too far away from what we just read. On the other hand, neither is there any hope for revival to come from non-charismatic churches who are repressing the Holy Spirit, who are forbidding to pray in tongues, who are sending an army to war without bullets. The only thing we can do is what Paul did. Right, Doc? Right basis. Right belief. He had to go right back and say, look, you people. Chapter 3, I have to give you people milk. You can't even eat solid food. I know there are a number of exceptions here. But everything that we looked at last night and today is baby food. You realize that? Ninety percent of what we've been talking about all day and last night is baby food. Ninety percent of it. Why? Because you people were in charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches. That's all you were ever given. But now the baby food's contaminated. So we have to begin all over, right from the beginning. We kept saying in Israel, every time God makes a new beginning, it's with small groups of people. The day of Pentecost, 120. Nehemiah, Nehemiah and a handful of people Going around the walls, we looked at last year. Remember, revivals never, never, ever are never characterized by mass movements of God's spirit through the church. No revival has ever, ever been characterized by a massive movement of God's spirit in the church. Revivals will always follow the patterns of Nehemiah in the Old Testament and the Book of Acts in the New. Revivals always begin by God's Spirit beginning with a small group. Never a big phenomenon like the charismatic renewal. Never anything like Toronto or restoration. Never. Always small. Like in the book of Acts, like Nehemiah. Always small. What happened with the Maccabees? New beginning. Small group. Azusa Street in California? A small group. John Wesley's revivals in England, a couple of Moravian missionaries and the Wesley brothers down at Aldersgate State in Britain, in our London. A small group. Everyone begins with a small group. If revival can come, if there can be a New launching of some kind of a charismatic or Pentecostal movement that will see revival. It'll follow that pattern. Small groups, not some big phenomena like Toronto overtaking churches. That's not how it happened in Nehemiah or Acts, and it's not how it's ever happened in church history. Secondly, the growth will always come not by Christians going from one church to another. It'll not come by transfer growth. Real growth is people being saved. I don't know. My interest is not in teaching the Bible. My interest is in evangelism. I don't want to teach the Bible. I'd be happy to do it once in a while, but I don't want to do this. I'd much rather go out and witness. I'd much rather witness the Jewish people and the people of other religions. But what kind of a church are you going to bring them into? (laughs) Jesus said, make converts. No, he said, make disciples. I have to do this. I have to do it. I don't want to do this. I'd rather be out there. I don't want to be in here. I'd rather somebody else did this. I wish there was other people, more people doing this. We've got to go back to step one. A new charismatic movement. But God has to do it. We can't do it. God has to.